We do not get to pick our times. God does that. We also don't get to pick the challenges that confront the church in any given era. Jesus is Lord of all, and we submit to him. The culture determines often the issues that require the, truth, the church's truthful witness. A pastor in the UK commented recently that he was astonished at how many pastors in America never or rarely speak publicly about sex, gender, and identity. He asked, how can we expect the next generation to be biblically grounded if we don't explain biblical convictions about the goodness of our bodies or about the nature of humanity or our gendered selves? You see, the church in the West now faces a set of challenges that exceeds anything that I have experienced in the past. The sexual revolution is now fundamentally restructuring our culture's collective understanding of, of what a family is, of what the society is, of the very meaning of life. And so this morning we launch a new sermon series, Imago Dei, in which we will discover, I hope, and uncover a theology of humanity. In systematic theology terms, it is a, uh, a biblical anthropology. What does the Bible say about humanity? It is scheduled for four Sunday mornings, but we live in a flexible world, right? And I have two grandbabies coming somewhere within those next four Sundays. So there might be an interruption. Deal with it. But no matter where we go in our thinking, we always have to remember two things in this series. There's only two points in the message today. And what we're going to do is introduce this series because these two, with these two ideas, you have to keep them always present. Everything that's said comes underneath these two things. Number one is this. Jesus had compassion. Jesus debated issues, there's no doubt about it, but much more than that, he loved people. All kinds of people came to speak with him during his life on earth. The religious insiders came to him, the socially excluded came to him, the handicapped, the undesirables, the rich and the poor, the young and the old, those whose lives have been messed up by other people came to him. Those whose lives they messed up themselves came to him. And Jesus loved them all. Jesus made time for them all. He respected them all. He didn't always agree with them. And who did he disagree with most? The religious leadership. But he always loved them especially those who came to him hurting. There's a phrase that Matthew picks up from Isaiah that he applies to Jesus and what he saw in his life and ministry. Matthew 12, verse 20 says this, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. The visual imagery 
that Jesus uses to remember as, as Matthew sees his life is beautiful. It's very easy to break off a bruised reed or to, a, or to snuff out a candle which barely doesn't have any flame. It's just that little bit of whatever. Jesus will not let fragile people crumble or collapse underneath the weight of their struggles. Jesus will come alongside and, and take those who feel that they're close to flickering out and help them to return to brightness and warmth. He is tender and gentle when you don't think that you can go any further. His, he described life with him as rest. He invited the burden to come and share that. Matthew 12, verse, or Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and, and, and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You're close to a breaking point. If you come today close to some breaking point, if you think your spark is very, very dim, or you're just too broken to stand on your own again, or if you know someone in that situation, Jesus says, I get that. I see you. I love you. I want to help. I may not always agree with you, but I only disagree with you because I want what's best for you. I've come to stiffen you, to, to strengthen you, not to snap you. I don't snuff out flickering candles. I want to carefully fan them into flames. Jesus loved people. And that's important to remember as we face a culture and we tackle a subject from a biblical viewpoint of humanity. What does it mean to be human? And yes, we will explore the biblical truth about the modern debates in our culture. But this series is not about a debate. It's about people, precious people, made in the image of God. Some are hurting, some are confused, some are angry. Maybe they're scared. Maybe they've been told by their families they're unwelcome. It's about some people who are delighted with how the culture has shifted when it comes to gender identity. It's about other people who are concerned about how the culture has shifted in terms of gender, uh, gender identity. But what would Jesus do? Jesus would listen and he would love. When he's disagreed with us, it would always and only be out of compassion never out of a desire to oppress us. He would never mock a hurting person. He would never shun them or insult them or sneer at them. He is so determined to pursue what's best for all of us that he died, excluded, mocked, and rejected to, secu to secure our best. And if this isn't the Jesus that you've heard of, then I'm sorry. And if this isn't the Jesus you've encountered here at Peninsula, then I'm sorry. Because that's the Jesus I want to stand with. That's the Jesus I want to speak for. 
And it is the Jesus whose words you'll hear in this series. We need to explore a theology of humanity, and that will include gender identity, and that means that for people who experience uncertainty or struggles with their gender identity. But this series is more than that. What the Bible says about being human is radical in our world. We have to approach life from the perspective of the scriptures. And we also have to ask, how should we seek to support people experiencing these kinds of conflicts in their lives? So why are we even doing this series? Because there's a revolution happening in Western culture that is exploding our assumptions and our traditions of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. There is a very loud debate about what it means to be a man or a woman. Some voices are really loud, other voices are very quiet. I think it is important to allow God's voice to speak in this debate. And that's what this series is all about. It is not a medical study. It is not a psychological study. It is not a political manifesto. I want us to hear the voice of God. And I want us to know what that voice says. And I'm tired of the church always playing catch-up in the culture. And to be honest, we were playing a little bit of catch-up as it is. As Andrew gets questions about these issues, I have muttered in the past under my breath, I'm so glad I'm not a youth pastor in today's culture. But I am a pastor. <laughs> and it is issues like these which makes me second-guess that role. But I didn't pick my time, and here we are. So let's not lag too far behind, like we did with showing compassion and grace in the homosexuality issue. Some churches there forgot about truth. Other churches forgot about grace. I pray this doesn't happen again. And when it comes to speaking truth, showing compassion and seeking justice. The church should be leading, not following. Never forget the truth that undergirds all that we say. Jesus had compassion. And supporting this first point in the series, read again what, he, what Matthew writes in Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so using Jesus as my guide and my example, I hope to offer a compassionate way forward, a way that's different and I think offers greater hope than many of the other voices in this debate. And as we tackle some very difficult issues, I hope you will remember that the God who speaks in the Bible is the same God who loves you so much that he came and he lived and he died to strengthen bruised reeds and to fan flickering flames. First pillar, Jesus had compassion. There's a second pillar. And the heart of any biblical concept of humanity begins with creation. Number two, creation is real. What is at the core of your worldview? To discover your worldview, you have to ask yourself this question. Do you really believe what you believe is really real? Write that down, maybe. 
do you really believe what you believe is really real? That question requires us to consider not just what we believe, but why we believe it. What is reality? What is the nature of the world around us? What is a human being? What happens to a person at death? Is it possible to know anything at all? How do we know right from wrong? You see, our worldview comes from, to the surface whenever we are asked to make a decision about how to live. And when we have to make a decision, how do we make that decision? Well, we're all looking at that moment for a source of three different things. Number one, we want authority. Who has the right to tell me what to do? Number two, we're looking for knowledge. Who knows what's best for me to do? And three, we're looking for trustworthiness. Who loves me and wants what's best for me? And if you can find a person, if you can find an institution, if you can find a book that offers those three, that's where you're going to turn to help you make your decisions. In our post-Christian world, the West has a wide range of options among which to find our source of authority and knowledge and trustworthiness. And if we can't agree on our answer as a culture to the source of those three things, why are we surprised if we're miles apart when we get to our destination? In our world, the fork in the road comes at the very beginning of the journey. For decades, there has been a crisis of authority in the Western world. And recently, with child abuse sex scandals, and way before that, the way Christians practice and justified race-based slavery, it made it reasonable to question whether churches could be trusted. Political scandals. I grew up with Watergate. The sexual affairs of politicians, the cover-ups, the lies, lowered the respect that we have for our political leadership. Videos of police officers beating unarmed and, and, and unnamed uh, African Americans eroded the trust, whether, no matter what, it eroded trust in civil authority. So where do you turn to find authority and knowledge and trustworthiness? Where has our culture turned? We have turned to me. Not me, but all of us saying me. It would be nice, I know. <laughs> Myself. Because it seems rather obvious. Who has the right to tell me how to live other than me? The sexual revolution tells me that the highest goal is self-fulfillment. And it's achieved by following my feelings. I mean, nobody's allowed to tell me what's right or wrong. I can decide. So we make our decisions according to our reasons, our feelings, or both. But if you dig a little deeper into this me culture, decisions that we make, the me part seems to tend to unravel. Decisions we make, they actually impact people around us because we live in community. It's not really just about me. I don't live in isolation. And do I really know myself all that well anyway? Am I really trusted to be able to decide what's best for me? 
We all act on our feelings, and we've regretted those decisions later on, so maybe I didn't know what was best. Maybe myself is not such a good place to look for authority and knowledge and trustworthiness. But where do we go? We have to make decisions. We have to build some sense of morality in our lives. We have to look at the world through some lens. And self still seems better than a religious institution or a secular organization or some previous generation. But there is a better story. There is a different story. That story provides a different script which to understand where to look for perfect authority and knowledge and trustworthiness. And that story begins in the first line of the Bible. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The world has a creator. And if you make something, you own it. The creator, therefore, has authority. And if you made it, you know it best. Therefore, the creator has knowledge. And since I'm part of creation and live within creation, God has the right to tell me what to do. And he has the knowledge necessary always to understand what I should do, what's best for me and the world. There is a creator, an all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-wise creator. But what, does that mean he's good? Well, not necessarily. Why should you and I trust our creator to know what's really best for us? Well, we can because we've seen what he's done. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You see, there is a creator who can be trusted to know what's truly best for you. He wants your best so much that he came in the person of the Son and he died for us. You see, the Bible tells us the story of a crucified creator. God loves you much more than you love you. And a crucified creator has the authority to tell us what to do. A crucified creator has the wisdom to know what's best for us. And the crucified creator has proved that he can be trusted to know what's best for us. That spark launches our worldview into a flame in Genesis 1.1. And we're going to spend next Sunday morning digging into the weeds of the early chapters of Genesis. And yet, Genesis has been questioned, has it not? There's all kinds of debate, even in the Christian world, about the legitimacy of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But it is important for us to understand that God as creator is not relegated just to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You see, most biblical authors, even Jesus himself, had a firm belief in God as creator. The biblical doctrine of humanity begins with him, God as creator. 
And that truth is a thread that's woven throughout the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let me overwhelm you with proof of that. Genesis 1, 31, God saw that, that God saw all that he made, had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Got to throw a Genesis 1 in there. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Psalm 139, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Isaiah 40, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding. No one can fathom. Jeremiah 32, ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, through Jesus, the word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus as creator. And then from the lips of the Savior himself, to doubt creation is to doubt the Savior. Matthew 19, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh from the days of creation. Romans 1, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been evident, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Colossians 1.16, for in him, in Christ, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Hebrews 11, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. He made it from nothing. Clear to the end, Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. The Bible shouts from the beginning to the end in total agreement, we have a creator. God made us. That is profound, and it leads us down a very different path than listening to yourself as the sole arbiter of authority, knowledge, and trustworthiness. 57 years ago, Time Magazine put out a, a startling cover that asked in this bombshell, is God dead? The death of God theology had made its debut many decades earlier, but that cover made it a conversation piece in our culture. One professor, inspired by that article, eventually would write a new liturgy marking the death of God. He had to redo Psalm 23, you know. He writes, he was our guide and stay. He walked with us beside still waters. He was our help in ages past. He is gone. He is stolen by darkness. Heaven is empty.
This new theology has become popular, especially on college campuses, where professors will try to deconstruct the spiritual life of their students. But in 2019, a new question emerged, and that is, is man dead? You see, in the last 50 years, Western society has re-envisioned the human person. See, for thousands of years, humanity was understood in the light of God. Mankind was made in the image of God. Therefore, humans had certain duties before God. They were fundamentally spiritual beings. But with the rise of the death of God theology, mankind is no longer seen as the creation of God. The prevailing view in in circles today is that mankind comes as a blank slate. We've evolved from eons old combustion of gases. Humanity has no divine origin, only an accidental one. There was no creative figure to guide the human race's formation or to shape the human person. There was no artist. There was no potter. Chaos and randomness can account for everything. The human race is not really all that distinct from the beasts. We're just a little bit higher than the animals, nothing more. We have no greater story. We have no greater purpose. No ordained end. This isn't heading somewhere. Atoms collided. So so does humanity. You see, without a creator, we have no ethics. We have no call to a certain code of ethics. We're born, we die, we dissolve back into nothingness. Nothingness is where we came from. Nothingness is where we're going. Therefore, we need to create our own realities. We become who we want to be. And therefore, the mantra of our day is found in sayings like, I am capable. I know who I am and I am enough. I chose to be present. That's all I can do. I choose to think thoughts that serve me well. I choose to reach better and for a better feeling. I share my happiness with those around me. My life is unfolding beautifully. I love challenges and what I learn from overcoming them. Each step is taking me to where I want to be. I, I, I. The perspective is one of self-determination. I determine my fate. I am the subject and I am the object. I need to be true to me. But you see, a biblical doctrine of humanity starts from quite the opposite perspective. It's not that we reject any sense of self-discovery, but if we wish to know ourselves, we need to look beyond ourselves. And the Bible is clear that we cannot know ourselves unless we know God. You have to begin in Genesis 1. And when we do, we enter the theistic world, the world with God, the world that God made. And it'll be as if we've been wandering through a confused building, shadows around us. It's dark. We don't know where we're going. And then we enter C.S. Lewis's wardrobe. And we pass into a Narnian realm of wonder and discovery. Theism. Now, we've been more philosophy and less Bible this morning. 
But I think we have to lay this clear foundation if we're going to rightly approach this subject. Jesus had compassion. So must we. Creation is real. Because that is going to color everything we believe about humanity. What are my hopes? What do I want to accomplish in this series? Four things. There's several directions that I want to explore. Number one, I hope we understand a biblical view of humanity. I want us to come away with a basic understanding of theological anthropology. What is humanity? What does it mean to be human? That God created humanity in His image. He made them male and female, and that male and female are exclusively made for one another. Number two, I hope we sense the call to truth and love. As followers of Jesus, we are called to both conviction and compassion. And grace and truth aren't intention when you look at the ministry of Jesus. I hope we learn to model the unity of Jesus Christ so lovingly and compassionately that it becomes displayed in the world. I hope we will see that framework in terms of creation and fall and redemption and restoration. See, in the light of the gospel, there's hope for those with any sexual sin, with any gender issues. May we come away from this series committed to sharing that call in truth and in love. Number three, I hope this series will launch many conversations over lunch. I hope that within our church we will talk about biblical issues. I hope that our church will be serious about being a safe place for those with sexual, gender identities, sexual sins, conflicts to open up to seek help if they want. And number four, I want the transgender community around us to know that Christians aren't their enemies despite the stereotypes. We are called to neighbor love and that cannot be limited to those with whom we agree. When transgender persons are bullied or mocked or ridiculed, physically harmed, it's the Christian that must defend their humanity and their, and their dignity. Even when we think or if we think they're transgressing the sacred boundaries that God has wisely and beautifully imposed on humanity, may we show them the love of Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. We have quite the journey ahead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you today for your goodness and your faithfulness. I pray for your wisdom and I pray for your grace in the weeks ahead that we would honestly deal with the text of your word that, that would fill us with your love and compassion and that we might reorient ourselves under our creator if that's what's necessary. But let us love one another and let us love you and your word and submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.